Welcome back to Fan Theory. I'm Alex Bias here at the Fan Theory Podcast. Joining me it is Felicia Wellington Riddell. Hey. Hey, Felicia. 1994. 1994. I would say we were in a time machine, but I don't want to be in a time machine. That's dangerous. That's how you get butterfly effects. That's also how you end up in the wrong era and yes. there are some problems. <laughs> anyway, uh, folks, we are here because 2019. It's weird. It's 2019. Yeah, that it is. Yeah. Uh, 2019. 2019. Stop it. <laughs> we'll discuss this later. I thought we fixed this. <laughs> Table that for later. <laughs> this year... <laughs> Is the twenty fifth anniversary of a uh, a year bunch that, of stuff uh, of a bunch of stuff, um, but broadly, it's a year that many folks, myself included, like to consider the finest year in the history of American film, nineteen ninety four. And so, Felicia and I are here today uh, to kind of uh, talk about nineteen ninety four and why that year mattered and why that year continues to matter. And Felicia, I know for both you and I, a reason why um, we initially thought of, you know, diving into this year and talking about it now um, is because of one local filmmaker with a bit of huge news. Who would that be? Oh, that'd be Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith, friend of fan theory, Kevin Smith. Um, Kevin Smith um, recently announced out of the Sundance Film Festival the Jay and Silent Bob reboot begins shooting uh, next month down in New Orleans. It's the one year anniversary of his heart attack, but it's also the 25th anniversary of when Clerks. Yeah, a little known film. Yeah. I mean, it really was a little known film. It was. It was. It's just shot in the Leonardo section of Middletown. One of the first things you see on screen in that film is a copy of the Asbury Park Press. Hello. Hi. Um, And. Clerks um, turns 25 this year. Uh, those Two of that film's characters, Jay and Silent Bob, as played by Kevin Smith and fellow friend of fan theory, Jason Mewes, are back. And that just kind of inspired Felicia and I to look back at Clerks a bit and also look back in 1994 in the broader sense. Yeah, and a little asterisk. Before we get flamed, yes, we know that Kevin Smith has been talking about the Jay and Silent Bob reboot for some time, but this is like the official official because they really hadn't secured any, like, I think they weren't done with funding. They really weren't sure what direction it was going to go in, if it was actually going to be a movie. Um, They hadn't. There was, like, no distributor. Like, none of the things. None of the official things that make a movie real. Yeah. You can talk all you want until you have all the official things on the checklist checked off, and then it's a real movie that's happening. So all of those things happened, and now they're about to start principal shooting. Correct. And that's all the, that makes all the difference. So we're talking official, official. Yes. Now that there is ink on paper and there's a date for cameras to start rolling, we are ready to talk about Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. Yep. Thanks, Saban Films. Weirdly, Saban Films. I know. I was like, hey, we know them. Yep. (laughs) Um, And just also, I agree, but I'm also can be convinced otherwise about 1994 being the best year of American film. But here's the thing. I will 100% agree with the fact that this was a real pivotal moment for – the sort of movies that we see now. I mean, there you anyway. I'll let you get to it because there was a point you made, and I'm like, absolutely, that's the year. But there's this contributed so much to the way that movies were shot, the kind of content matter that we were getting in movies, the sort of audiences that were being targeted in movies, and soundtracks. 
Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Big turning point in soundtracks. I think for me, a huge component of why 1994 was so important is because you had the boom, the explosion of this indie film generation yes. that had been coming up out of Amer the American scene of the late 80s into the early 90s, which, as Kevin Smith talked with us about, was really preceded by guys like Spike Lee and Richard Linklater. But then you had the Sundance Bratz generation. You had Kevin Smith. You had Quentin Tarantino. You had right around the corner Robert Rodriguez. And they were all dropping some of their best work in or around 1994. I mean, you had Clerks and Pulp Fiction in the same year. And this and was... And Lion King. At, yeah, but I'll get to lie. <laughs> but, like, what my, my point is you had, like, the best of the indies all getting called up to the main roster, essentially, mm -hmm. um, and really breaking through in a huge way. I mean, I, in 1994, I was a child, but I knew the names Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. And, and another thing, I mean, I think it's part of the same point, even mm -hmm. though it's going to sound unrelated. In researching this and just in digging through my childhood memories, it's so interesting that there are movies that you will think were not made in 1994, but totally were. And yeah. it's like, oh, that makes sense. Of course it would have been that year is the rest of it. There were so many movies that I thought maybe were the year before or the year after, and they were 100% in 1994, which I think just adds to the fact that this really just was such a, a turning tide of, of like pop culture. Yeah, because also while you had the, the indies, you know, the indie breakthroughs on one hand, you also had the mainstream American blockbuster popcorn cinema really firing on all cylinders between The Lion King, Forrest Gump, The Shawshank Redemption, True Lies, one of the most fun action movies ever made starring now hashtag TM Savage Grandma Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> yes. Um, it's like it remi 1994 reminds me of what everyone says about Casablanca, which is that it's just the American film industry doing what it's supposed to do as well, it can as, as well as it can possibly be done. And you had that you had that two front attack of the of the mainstream really doing its thing. Like Speed was nineteen ninety four. It was like one of the <laughs> largest movies. Yeah, I think we think of it almost in a joking but reverent way. Uh, but it was talk about a blockbuster. You know how much money that movie made? Yeah, it made all the money. Uh -huh. Everything that Lion King didn't make, Speed made. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then Forrest Gump was in there too. Yeah, that also happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just. Even beyond that, have we mentioned a Jim Carrey movie? Because he had like a hundred. Oh yeah, folks. You, you know Jim Carrey? Uh, I've heard something about him. 1994, in January of 94, Jim Carrey put out Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, then put out Dumb and Dumber, and then put out The Mask. All in the same 12-month period. Yeah. Like, that's a career. Like, that's not a that year. Is that's that, that is his career. But that's, <laughs> I mean, I did like the Truman Show. But. That's, and Man on the Moon, and in Charles. He did good work. But like, he had that a, was he, his biggest year. He had a 1994 that other people would make an entire, like, that would be other people's entire careers. And it's just stunning to look back and see that, like, every quarter we had a new Jim Carrey movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, so uh, what do you want to talk about re with regards to 1994? I think we just we blasted through a, a big kind of top-down overview. Yeah, we've been name-dropping a lot of movies, and I think that's almost the fun part, just saying, did you know about this one? Okay, yeah. blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. This one, blah, 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 blah. I mean, 
you talked about indies, but there are things like The Crow. Do you remember The Crow? Did you even see it? Yeah. I was a little young to be seeing that. I didn't see it in theaters or anything. We had it on tape. I do I remember. think my parents bought it for them. And then me and my brother were like, oh, my God, did you hear what happened in the movie? It's the movie that the guy died while filming. You know, Brandon <laughs> yeah. Lee, R.I.P. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I, <laughs> do, I do remember The Crow. But it's just things like that were also just so big. And, again, I don't know if this is where you want to dive into how this changed. A lot of the movies that came out then, how they changed you know, yeah, let's, let's cinema di- culture. Let's dive in. Because I think The Crow is one of the... I didn't realize how many comic book movies came out in 1994. Mm-hmm. Between The Crow and The Mask. Like, it's it was a low-key early year that kind of anticipates what we're in now. Or this type of material. Like, it wasn't necessarily a comic book, but Interview with the Vampire came out in 94. Mm-hmm. I mean, which gave us Kirsten Dunst. I believe this was her first, one of her first roles. I believe it was, if not her first, it was one her of her first. One, yeah. yeah. And But anyway, it's based on the book by Anne Rice. I mean, this was, her books were flying off the shelves after this. Yeah. It really was kind of, like... Whatever's old is new again. Yes, vampires have been in before and they're out and they're in and then they're out. But this really did kind of strike that vampires being back in, look at like that supernatural type of stuff. And it was a little bit more horror than like schlocky. (laughs) Is that the right word? And it was also more like there's always been a, a sexual or romantic or erotic subtext to vampires. Going back to Bela Lugosi, going back to Nosferatu, you can even see it. But Interview with the Vampire is the first vampire film, mainstream work of vampire fiction, I recall, where it's like, oh, this isn't even subtext anymore. Like, we're just, like, I feel like you can draw a line from Interview with the Vampire to Twilight, mm-hmm. say. Like, it's, let's let's stop, you know, backgrounding this. Like, this is just what these stories are. This is what are. it is. This is what it is. <laughs> um, and I think Louis and Lestat make an adorable couple. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think there's that. There were the comic book movies, as you mentioned. I think action was a little bit different in this era. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned True Lies, and we can get into that. But one of my favorites as a kid, I don't know why, I loved Clear and Present Danger. I don't know. I'm a boring person, I guess. No, I was a boring child, too. I, but I, I thought was it was excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was excellent action. I don't know why my parents were letting me watch it. But And my dad had, like, you know, the Clancy books. So I was like, I got to read it. And then I realized. It was a really, really boring book, but and I still read it though. But <laughs> it's weird because I that was the I am aware that that was the third of the Jack Ryan films after Hunt for Red October and Patriot the big Games. One. This yeah. was, and I think this was because you now had Harrison Ford really in the role, and this was just like a huge. I mean, this movie made a lot of money. Yeah, maybe it was just by you know it was on the weight of the. Um, the name of the actors involved or something. But it really blew up, and it really blew up the series. I mean, whatever's old is new again. I mean, now we have new Jack Ryan stuff. I mean, Tom Clancy, RIP. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's really kind of circling back to that kind of action. But it was it was a little bit different. It wasn't like Rambo, blow everything. Like, the 80s were over. I feel like this is what 1994 kind of signaled, that the 80s are done. You can yeah. try again with the next Karate Kid, a movie that... What's her face probably wants to pretend never happened, but it gets points for trying. <laughs> but 
they were over. Like, I think Beverly Hills Cop 3 came out that year. It's it like did. the worst of the... It's real bad. Yeah, it's The 80s are done. We are in a new era. We're in movies where it's okay to have slackers. It's movies that it's okay to have, you know, these large swaths of horror. And, you know, the action's different and more nuanced. And it's like, look at... Um, I totally agree with you. Uh, look at Speed, how different of an action hero Keanu Reeves is in Speed than who would have been starring in that movie a couple years prior. I mean, we had a Steven Seagal movie in 1994, and it was On Deadly Ground, where Steven Seagal fights Michael Caine over the environment, and it's dreadful. It's like <laughs> like I'm agree- like I'm what you're saying, the old guard of the action hero is f- quickly fading away. And I think just how a couple years earlier you see Nirvana in the world of music phasing out hair metal and glam metal in terms of grunge, I feel like in characters like Keanu's character in Speed and the uh, Harrison Ford version of Jack Ryan in Clear and Present Danger, you're seeing a far more grounded action hero. Mm -hmm. And I think True Lies fits with this because True Lies is actually a comedy. I know. True Lies is making fun of the 1980s action scene. And I loved it. Yes. It was so funny and fun, and it was like adapt or die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, if they had tried to play that straight, it it, it wouldn't have worked. It was better because it was like, oh, look at this married couple they don't know. And, you know, I don't know. It was so cute and sweet, and they were well-matched, so... And True Lies reminds me of the uh, the more recent Mission Impossible movies we've been getting, and that it pushes the action to such a level of absurdity that's hilarious. Yeah. And yeah, and they know, and they know it. It's not like we meant it serious. It's like we get it. No one's driving a helicopter into a you know. Arnold's riding a horse <laughs> on an elevator. <laughs> so. Man, I remember a lot of True Lies. Yeah, it's such a good movie. I need to rewatch it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, also, going back to, like, the more sci-fi type stuff, Stargate came out that year. And it sh- it should it's the kind of movie that did well that probably shouldn't have done well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm happy it did. It spun off a whole TV show. But it should not have worked, and it did. And I think it's because we were starting to see a lot of those indie films and that new kind of content. Because Star Trek Generations, a terrible movie. <laughs> uh, was it? It was a movie. It was a movie that I don't want to talk about, but it came out in 1994, so I have to. It did, but, but, I, but I think it also uh, plays into our narrative uh, that we're finding via conversation of 1994 as a changing of the guard year, as a well, sea yeah. change year. Well, I was going to say, as Star Trek is my baby, I love you and almost, almost everything you do, uh, but I don't feel like it was ready to change it was mm-hmm. more they were just like look more people in it doesn't really doesn't really help but also i think we were coming out of the 70s and 80s where no matter what existed everything kind of boiled down to star trek this is really like the star trek versus star wars was all that emerged yeah <laughs> right and having stargate succeed you know in the 90s i think was kind of like no there's other material out there that we can address it can be superheroes it can be other kinds of sci-fi it can be you know these other narratives that aren't just from those two properties mm-hmm. yeah I, I i agree i mean and even having the mask become a huge hit film based on a dark horse comic i believe it's dark horse don't at me if it's image i think it's dark horse i think it's dark horse okay so having the mask come out um, based on a Dark Horse comic and be a monster hit adapted from source material that most people hadn't read and still won't read. Um, 
I, I agree. Like there are other voices coming to the forefront here. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even talked about the best sci-fi movie, Junior. <laughs> oh, Danny DeVito, my friend, I'm having a baby. Oh. It's the best Arnold Schwarzenegger, how did you get in here? Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> here to talk about my fantastic film, Junior. Oh, but I thought we were getting Danny DeVito. Oh, it's Arnold time. <laughs> I star the movie. We make a sequel called Junior the Second. Junior, Junior. No, <laughs> I reject this. <laughs> get out of here, Arnold. <laughs> and I know I'm all over the place. I'm going to go back to action for a second. There's another action movie I forgot to mention. It's definitely very 80s, and so it's not very good at all. But the reason why I want to bring it up, and I think it has its place of semi-importance, I'm going to tell you the movie, and then I want you to guess why. Drop okay. Zone. Is that the one with Wesley Snipes? Yes. Okay. I haven't seen Drop Zone. Okay. Okay. So that you needed to have seen it to see why. All right. Hans Zimmer. Oh. He scored that movie. It was one of his first. Really? It may have been his first. Because Hans Zimmer scored another movie in 94 as well. (laughs) But, yeah, this was one of the – it's very 80s, um, his sound here. I think – I think he knew who he was as a composer, but I think he was also maybe still playing around with certain types of sound. Mm -hmm. And you can hear the beginnings of the kind of work that he does. And it was always so interesting to me because I have seen Drop Zone. Wow. It's very 80s, that movie. It must have been shot in the 80s. But it's very loud and action-y and look at me, I'm a hero. (laughs) But... I think, again, this really, I know this is a score, and when I talk about soundtracks, I mean separate from the score, but this, I think, also is a very big turning, not a turning point, but this really does introduce the time of changing scores as well and giving us Hans Zimmer, because I would say he's one of the biggest movie composers in the world right now so yeah that's definitely aside from like john williams who's like semi-retired oh steven spielberg called fine i guess i'll go here you go steven (laughs) but that's interesting because like hans zimmer i i agree and i mean i think in in forrest gump the monster hit oscar winner of that year um Best Picture winner of that year. Um, you get an, an Alan Silvestri score, which is a very classically 70s, 80s, super melodic score. But I think in the work that Hans Zimmer did, say, for The Lion King and in some of the other film scores going forward, you're already starting to see a shift away from that more traditional school of film scoring. Um but if you want to talk about film soundtracks right now... Yeah, let's jump into it. We've kind of been all over the place, the, name dropping. The first CD I ever owned that I purchased for myself with my own money was the Forrest Gump soundtrack. Hey, that's a pretty solid choice. It really I'm is. I'm not going to make fun of that. It's a two-disc CD that uh, goes from Elvis Presley yes. to, I think, like Jackson Brown or Bob Seger, and it covers... From the mid-50s to the late-70s. Like, (laughs) if for some reason your FM radio wasn't working that day and you couldn't tune into Q104.3, all of your classic rock staples are right here. Um, But that was a really good CD that was also a really good kind of, like, starter kit. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a year where you see between uh, Clerks and the the 90s grunge and post-grunge stuff that's on the Clerks soundtrack – uh, really, you know, informing character and creating a bridge between audience and character, um, or Pulp Fiction with its really obscure surf rock and, and stuff like that. It's 
soundtrack as a storytelling tool, I think, really, really is at the forefront in 1994. Or even soundtracks that almost exist without the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a lot of movies where it was like, oh, no, this is awful. But the soundtracks were so dope. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they were just, I think that they were just hyper-producing a lot of them, like, let's introduce new artists, let's pair this with that. I mean, we were beyond scores at this point. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking about, like, um, like Above the Rim, I remember. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows Regulator, everyone knows Warren G, but Mm -hmm. do you know that it was on the Above the Rim soundtrack? Probably not. I mean, have you even seen Above the Rim? Have you guessed that it's a movie about basketball? (laughs) I did guess that it was a movie about basketball. (laughs) I I didn't see the movie as a kid. Um, I I think I'm within their target audience, too. But I did not see the movie, but I knew everything about that soundtrack. It was just almost, it almost existed without the movie. Uh, There was the movie A Low Down Dirty Shame, which I think has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. People were not amused or a fan of that movie. But the soundtrack had all the things. there were so many movies with just like these dope, awesome soundtracks. I, this might have Reality been, Bites. This might have been 95, but the Conehead soundtrack. <laughs> the best Red Hot Chili Peppers song, Soul to Squeeze, Don't Fight Me, that's their best song, um, was on the Conehead soundtrack for <laughs> no reason. But it's like, I, yeah, like the soundtrack was kind of replacing pop radio and the conventional album as the way to drop a new single. Yeah, I mean, I think going into this, there was at least, if there was a soundtrack, aside from a score, there was maybe one pop, you know, overture. But now it was like, nope, fill it with catchy tunes, popular tunes, you know, fill it with the music that people want to hear, music of an era. Or or you had like these artist-specific soundtracks where you had, like, Simon and Garfunkel do a bunch of songs for The Graduate, or you had Cats, or uh, Leonard Cohen, McCabe, and Miss Miller, but you didn't have these, like, essentially... Mixtapes. Yeah, I was going to say these red-hot mixtapes. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, um, I definitely... The, the number of, like, high... What's the word I'm looking for? The ones that just, they were at the top of the charts, a lot of these soundtracks. Yeah. There were so many to choose from. And even if you didn't like every song on it, that was the thing. It was like this eclectic mix that you could appreciate apart from the movie. Because it wasn't this year. I think it was 95, Braveheart came out. Mm-hmm. And so that score, a lot of people, that score was very popular. People would play it. But it was reminiscent of the movie, right? That was almost, it's interesting how that is one thing. And then this was also what was occurring and then we would see that grow and change a little bit um, and then kind of reemerge. I'd say in the last seven or eight years with the kind of indie pop song you haven't heard but they all sound the same that we get on like primetime TV yeah and, <laughs> and these days you get a lot of great songs in trailers even yeah. if they're not necessarily in the film I just remembered having this conversation that I had the mask soundtrack on cassette oh, oh man that was a good soundtrack. I believe you. I think I listened to that tape more than I watched the movie. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens, right? So, uh, do we want to talk about The Lion King? Do we want to really dive into The Lion King? We can. I mean, it's The Lion King. Everyone saw it. Yes, and everyone's about to see it again in July. <laughs> Adorable side note, my two-year-old calls it the, the King Tiger movie. <laughs> I don't know why. I keep telling him it's a lion, and he knows what a lion is, but he keeps calling it a tiger. And then, But he remembers the king part, like, belatedly. So he'll be like, Mommy, Mommy, put on Tiger uh, King movie. Tiger King. I'm like, no, tiger King it's movie. 
It's not what it is. <laughs> That's the direct-to-DVD knockoff put out by the asylum like two weeks after the movie comes out. Come see Tiger King movie. Yeah, <laughs> Tiger King movie, capital M. <laughs> but it's, yeah, Lion King's a great film. July 19th, we're getting John Favreau's remake of it that I don't really want to call live action. Um, sure, there are real lions in it. <laughs> it taught real lions how to talk. <laughs> and sing. Yeah. And dance, probably. Um, but I just, it's a remark, it is a remarkable film and it's it's kind of classic Disney animation operating at its finest. Um, Everyone saw it. Yes. And I feel Several like times. That is an important thing. I mean, I was really young when it came out, but boy, we everyone saw it. It was all we were talking about in school. I was like in middle school, I think. Was I in fifth grade? Anyway, you know, we were all talking about it. Everyone saw it. That's we. That's that's all we talked about mm -hmm. for like months. <laughs> I mean, it felt like for like the first quarter. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was seeing it multiple times. It was everywhere. And then, you know, people who had, you know, were suddenly singing Akuna Matata everywhere. And it was just all the things. And then, I mean, has anything, how many movies get to permeate all of pop culture across the board from the songs to the products to the, I mean, I know Disney tries with everything they put out, but this was, this was different, right? It, it, I really, I'm racking my brain. I mean, I think the song Let It Go did, but I don't think Frozen as a whole and Frozen came did. out in what, 2014, yeah. 2015? And same, like, I think the characters from Toy Story were everywhere, but not, it, was, was, it wasn't this four quadrant across the board, we own your life. Four months. <laughs> It was really months. And I, I mean, maybe someone will call me on it, but I was a kid. I was a kid. The target audience, the one you go with to see this movie. Yes. And that's all we kids were talking about, this movie. We even, um, I was in uh, like symphonic band. I played the trumpet and the violin. They were breaking out. I mean, don't tell Disney. I don't know if this is allowed. But they were we were learning to play like music from the movie as like our winter concert, I think. I mean, mm -hmm. that's <laughs> Yeah. That's that's what was happening. It was all, it was everything and everywhere. So. And I I can't think of another film cuz yeah, like other films have made more money since Avatar has made more money. Since, <coughs> so. mm. well, I'm sorry, what? Yes, exactly that one. Uh, but it it didn't shape and permeate the culture the way The Lion King did. And, and it, things may have since brought up Frozen, but this feels like one of the first. Mm -hmm. And it's even if someone wants to argue it, and I'll hear all arguments, I'm more than happy to discuss, it's still one of the few <laughs> Yeah, that gets all of, the, all of the boxes and all of the attention. Yeah. And I know we've already been just kind of name dropping and for almost half an hour it's a trip down memory lane. thank you thank you uh fan theory listeners for indulging us this has been a, a delightfully nostalgic episode for both of us yeah hopefully uh, for everyone else i think you were all there and around in I, I would hope so uh, but uh we have a list here of just other films that came out in 1994 um serial mom reality bites also uh, two of my favorite films of all time that we didn't really get natural to born killers. No, although oh, also what can I guess? <laughs> no. You, Fine, no, you, you can it. no, you can guess. Fine, no, just say no. Um, 
Yes, because <laughs> you have seen the photos of my Halloween costume. Yes. <laughs> um, no, Ed Wood and The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Um, two films that weirdly don't feel like 1994 because they feel instantly timeless. Like, Ed, either of those movies could, could come out 25 years ago, 50 years ago, or tomorrow, and they would work just as well. And I think well. this is what I meant. In my head, I knew that Shawshank Redemption came out in the 90s, but I actually thought it came out like 1990, 1991. When I saw 94, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes that makes all the sense when I thought about what I know about Stephen King and, yeah. and, and everything in the books that he wrote in the 90s. I was like, yep, got it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Of course. <laughs> you know, not to, not to name drop, but one time I was uh, – through my job here, uh, I was speaking to Stephen King, and he he told me of a confrontation he had with a woman in a grocery store. Not me. Not you, because you did not confront Stephen King in a grocery store in Florida, where no. the man has his summer home. This was certainly no, not. This that. was certainly not Felicia. Nope. And this woman walks up to Stephen King, and she says to him, "You write all those scary books, don't you?" And he said, uh, "Yes, ma'am, I do." <laughs> And she said, I don't like those stories. I like nice stories like the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> and and he, then 10 years later, she said, and the Green Mile. <laughs> but not as much. <laughs> also, Hearts in Atlantis, kind of. <laughs> she, she said, I like nice stories like the Shawshank Redemption. He said, ma'am, I wrote that too. <laughs> and she said, no, you and didn't. the running ma'am. <laughs> the running ma'am. Because then she ran away. Hey, it's Arnold. I'm here to talk about the running oh ma'am. God. Stop all of it. Thank you for your invitation Stop to your podcast. This train, man. I'm here to talk about The Running Man. It's, it's my favorite film of 1994. When did that movie, it had to come out in the 80s. It came right? out in 1982. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? I just know it's a book by, you know. Richard Bachman. Yeah, is that, was that his fake name? <laughs> yes, Richard. Yeah. What do you mean? I, Richard Bachman hasn't put out anything lately. I wonder why. I wonder why. The Stephen King has taken over the, the writing charts. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Anyway. 1994, guys. Yeah. Uh, but I know we kicked Let's off. Let's write a song. Let's not write a song. Let's I'm just not. kidding. Okay. I know we kicked off this conversation by talking about Jane Silent Bob Reboot, which starts shooting in February. And stay tuned to Fan Theory because we're going to keep bringing you all the intel on that um, as we get it. Um, I know we're really excited to see what Jane Silent Bob have to say for themselves in 2019, 2020. The movie will probably come out in 2020, I would guess. Um, but stay tuned because as we know more, you'll know more. And um, what was your favorite Jim Carrey movie of 1994? <laughs> was it Ace Ventura? Was it The Mask? Was it Dumb and Dumber? Why did I go into movie phone voice? I don't know. It's early. How can you not? Thank you for calling Fan Theory. What Jim Carrey movie would you like to talk about? None of them. Press zero. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, you meant of all time. Okay, The Truman Show. That one's pretty good, too. I like that one. Yeah. And in case I don't see you tomorrow, good morning, good... uh, No, that's not how it goes. I don't know. (laughs) Saw that movie once in the theater. Walked in in 20 minutes late. I had no idea what was going on. (laughs) This doesn't seem right at all. No. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, for the Fan Theory Podcast and the Asbury Park Press, I've been Alex Bice. Felicia Wellington Riddell. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Fan Theory. The Fan Theory Podcast is part of the Asbury Park Press and USA Today Network. You can listen to new episodes every Friday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 
please leave us a review and let us know what you think. For the latest updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit us at abp.com slash fan theory, where you can subscribe to our weekly fan theory newsletter. Bye.